Hello there, music teacher friends. Welcome to episode number 65 of the Beyond Measure podcast. My name is Christina Whitlock, here to serve you as your anytime piano teacher friend whenever you need one. Today, we are continuing our discussion on preparing students for performance. Last week's episode focused on setting our students up for success by operating on a better timeline. And now, today, I feel like we get to talk about the really good stuff, (laughs) our mindsets. Yep, we're talking all the inner workings of our brain, the psychology of performance, and I don't know about you, but as for me, as a chronic overthinker and careful student of all the ways our thoughts influence behavior, I am like really excited to dive into this today. So without further delay, here we go. Really quick, I wanted to take a moment to address competition performances specifically for a moment. So really, I'm addressing competitions, festivals, or, you know, any event where there is an adjudicator involved, some kind of score or feedback from a judge, right? (laughs) I wanted to share a conversation that I have with pretty much every single student before any one of these events. It's not anything that sounds all that revolutionary to me, but I also don't hear enough teachers saying these words out loud. So here we go. I think it is so very important to remind our students that their scores at these events are the reflection of one person's opinion on one performance of their piece. Out of the many, many, many times a student has played their piece leading up to the event in question, this is just one run. None of their value as a musician or as a person is dependent on that one performance of that one piece. This time of year, I often find myself playing for a lot of middle school and high school soloists at their state solo and ensemble contests, and this is truly my like go-to talk with those young musicians as they find themselves waiting nervously in the hallway, waiting on their performance room to be ready for them. And when we speak these words... I can see their bodies like physically relax when I say those words, you know, that this is one person's opinion on one run of your piece. And that's it. Because what happens in that room may or may not reflect your preparation. I mean, it might reflect better or more poorly on you. And that's just the name of the game. What really matters to me is that preparation. I don't like seeing ill-prepared students get lucky and walk out of those rooms with superior scores. Uh, Likewise, I really hate it when well-prepared students get shafted in their scoring. But honestly, that's all wrapped up in the nature of competition. So in the end, if a student has put in their time 
if they've taken the event seriously, and if they made the difficult choice to show up and do that challenging thing, well, you know, that is the stuff that matters, not that one person's opinion on the one performance of their piece. Side note, if you aren't aware, I released an episode last spring on things to consider as an adjudicator. So I actually consider it some of the most important content I've released. So if you do any kind of judging throughout the year, I humbly suggest you go take a listen, like pronto. (laughs) That's episode number 24. Okay, I just needed to get all that off my chest. Here's the thing. As musicians ourselves, we all know what a mixed bag this performance thing is. My students and I talk often, upcoming performances or not, about the human condition and what that means when it comes to playing music. My students are very well-versed in this idea, as I give frequent, probably animated reminders about how mistakes are inevitable as human beings, and our real job as performers is to know how to handle ourselves when the mistakes come. I will go to my grave believing that strong performers are those who are able to navigate the surprises, whether that's a memory slip or a less-than-awesome instrument, a noisy audience member, or whatever the case may be. It's the people who can take those things in stride and still maintain the integrity of the performance. That's what makes you a real performer. It's not trying to be someone who never makes mistakes, because, I mean, I don't know any of those people, do you? I often tell my students to consider professional basketball players. Those athletes make enormous amounts of money, and they spend untold hours of practice time on that court. When I watch a basketball game, which admittedly is not really all that often, I can't help but be fascinated by any player who gets the opportunity to throw a foul shot. I always wonder how many thousands upon thousands of times they've probably practiced that shot in their career. And you know what? They still miss it sometimes. (laughs) It's the human factor. We're never going to get rid of it. (laughs) So if a basketball player who devotes a very significant portion of their life dedicated to making that one kind of shot and, you know, It's someone who bears this heavy responsibility of being paid lots of money to be able to make that shot. You know, if they haven't even found a way to be perfect about it all the time, neither can we, right? (laughs) My students love it when I try to talk sports because I'm just not a sporty person. But anyway, several years ago, the always fabulous Samantha Coates gave a presentation at MTNA that she called the seven deadly sins of performance. It was amazing. (laughs) To this day, one of my favorite presentations of all time. I mean, huge shout out to Sam and her most memorable presentation. 
I won't regurgitate her whole session here, of course, though I am thoroughly jealous that her idea wasn't mine first, (laughs) but I did want to share just one little nugget with you here. Sam likened performing to casting a spell over your audience, like a magic spell. (laughs) We all know that super incredible feeling that happens when you can tell an audience is fully immersed in what you are doing, right? In fact, you've likely felt it from both sides, uh, both as an audience member and as a performer. Well, one of Samantha's seven deadly sins of performance, like these things we should never do, right? (laughs) Well, one of them was to break the spell that you had cast over your audience. So how do we break the spell? Oh, let me count the ways. You all know them well. There is the subtle shaking of your head. There's making audible comments that you mutter under your breath. There's neglecting to finish your piece without the physical bravado it commands. And, you know, instead just throwing your hands haphazardly into your lap and skulking off stage. Whatever it may be. But I loved that visual of casting a spell over your audience and not breaking it until you absolutely have to and your piece is entirely finished. My students hear me say this all the time, that you know that moment when you end a piece and you are slowly moving your hands into your lap and your audience is like almost afraid to start clapping because they just don't want to disturb the beauty of that experience you've just given them. (laughs) I live for those moments of silence, and I secretly love trying to like extend them for as long as possible by playing with my body language. True story. (laughs) Anyway, that is the idea of casting a spell on your audience. And my students have responded very favorably to thinking of their performances that way. I'm quite sure we have Harry Potter to thank a little bit for that one as well. Would you like to hear a great example of a student breaking the spell? (laughs) Well, here's a classic from my archives. (laughs) Many years ago, a local university had been holding this great annual performance event where they invited each piano teacher in the area to bring one of their students to campus and have them perform in a recital. It really was a brilliant idea because, of course, it got students to their campus And I enjoyed choosing one student to highlight and seeing them perform with all these other students of other teachers. It was really fun. Anyway, at that performance one year, there was a student, not mine for the record, but he was performing Chopin's famous prelude in E minor, Opus 28. You know it, the slow one featured in the movie The Notebook, you know, bum, ba, dum. (laughs) Right, anyway. If you're a pianist, you know the musical demands of that piece far outweigh the technical demands, right? And because that is the case, it's often misassigned. I mean, I've been guilty of doing it too. But anyway, this particular performance was, well, just just okay. It was a little too slow, and the student really didn't appear to make much effort in shaping that melodic line. The bass line was too heavy, and it just felt long. (laughs) 
So the student was nearing the end of this piece and basically appeared to suffer a memory slip at the very end of the piece, like just before the final 1571 cadence that wraps the entire thing up. And the student got lost, turned his head to the audience, and proclaimed in this like enormous, strong voice, like almost like he was in a Shakespearean play or something. He turned to us and he said, I'm going to start over. <laughs> and he did. He went all the way back to the beginning of the piece and gave us an even bumpier ride through the already lackluster rendition of the piece. And it just felt like he was on stage for like 20 minutes. I don't know. <laughs> Friends, please know my heart here, okay? I adore young musicians, and no one wants to be their cheerleader more than I do. <laughs> I hope I don't sound as though I'm just tearing down a student who is having a bad day. And for the record, his teacher was one of the most respected in our area. It's proof that everyone can have a bad day, right? Really, I owe this kid a great deal because that performance has provided me with the ultimate counterexample. <laughs> he most definitely broke our spell, right? <laughs> I'm going to start over. <laughs> I still laugh about it to this day. <laughs> so that brings me to what I call exit strategies. Anytime I'm preparing a piece for performance with a student, we discuss potential exit strategies. There are moments when you feel a little shaky in a performance, but it's worth it to dig in and work it out. But of course, there are also moments when you need to abandon the sinking ship and get yourself to higher ground. <laughs> For this, I must credit my beloved undergraduate professor, Tommy Otten. Dr. Otten had the grueling task of turning a very, very green, very technically deficient 18-year-old me into someone who could actually hold her own in this field. And our studies were very intense. I mean, very intense in a way a lot of you would probably say is counterproductive. But I will tell you this. It actually was very effective, and I loved it. I am forever grateful for that relationship, and we're good friends to this day. Anyway, nearing end-of-semester juries, our studio would hold extra meetings where instead of our weekly studio class in the recital hall, we would also crowd into Tommy's office and sit on little pillows that he had scattered across the floor. Mind you, once you put two grand pianos and about 15 bodies into a collegiate studio, things were crowded. <laughs> we would take turns playing for one another, with our studio mates quite literally sitting at our feet. And, I don't know, I'll just say there was a lot of sweat in that room. <laughs> so, like the well-prepared pianists we were... We all had what we called jump spots in our pieces, and those were multiple places we could pick up our repertoire if our memories happened to have a failing moment, right? So occasionally, as we would be performing in these really intense, crowded classes, 
Dr. Otten would would drop his fist, like quite strongly, on the music rack beside us and yell, jump! (laughs) So at that point, we would be expected to quickly skip to our next memory marker, demonstrating our ability to pick up our piece in a new location at a moment's notice. Intense, yes, but it was a great drill. So, minus the crowded space and the strong fist, my students and I typically embark on the same process leading up to performance. I think of it like a safety net. You know, we play worst case scenario games of, all right, say the bottom drops out on you right here. Where do you need to pick up next? And of course, if nothing else, we discuss what I call the ultimate exit strategy, which would just be the final chord or two or three chords of the piece. It's like so many things in life. If we are prepared for the worst to happen, it pretty much never does, right? (laughs) But we all know that if students don't take just a few minutes and decide how they would wrap up their performance, if the absolute worst happened, well, (laughs) Murphy's Law tells us that it will happen, right? (laughs) So anyway, yes, exit strategies are super important. Our students have to know how to rescue themselves if they get in trouble. And that goes for whether they're playing from memory or not, because they don't want to break the spell that they've cast, regardless of what kinds of mistakes may come their way. Ooh, one last thought on those exit strategies. Please, 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 please make sure your students know to leap forward in their music if necessary. So sometimes it feels obvious to jump backwards and restart a particular section. I know, but you and I both know that that pretty much never ends well, right? (laughs) It's a huge flaw in performance thinking. I know students want to go back and prove themselves, quote unquote, (laughs) but more often than not, that same passage they struggled with the first time just steps up with an even stronger vengeance the next time. And then we end up in a never-ending cycle, and it's just not good, friends. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, Well, the clock is like screaming at me and telling me it's time to wrap up our little party for today. (laughs) But I feel like we have only scratched the surface of the things I have to say on this topic. I guess that means I'm going to need to write a part three. hmm? (laughs) Before we move on with our day, Let's make a toast to one another and this delightfully thought-provoking profession of ours, shall we? (laughs) Music teacher friends of the world, today I am challenging you to consider the many, many aspects of performance. It's such a worthy endeavor, but of course it's also really complex. I've been saying it since episode number two of this podcast. We need our students to feel capable, accountable, and invested in. And that capable part of the puzzle 
means that we have a big responsibility to prepare them adequately for public performances to the very, very best of our abilities. Does that mean that we are solely responsible for good or bad performances? Of course not. I mean, there are many factors beyond our control when our students are playing. But like all things in life, the best thing we can do is concentrate on our own abilities to influence positive results. Yes? <laughs> By helping your students acknowledge the storm of th thoughts inside their own brains, you can help influence the way that they deal with them. And that, friends, is powerful stuff. I raise my glass to you, my deep-thinking teacher friends. Hear, hear. So there is episode 65 for you, friends. <laughs> As I mentioned, we'll go ahead and make this a three-part series and finish up next week with some specific action items, as in actual, actionable practices that you can put into place to help make sure your students are ready for performance time. I will cap this series at three episodes, so if performance prep is not your thing, I promise we will move on soon. <laughs> Before we go, I wanted to throw a quick shout out to Apple user KBKLB for leaving me my latest review on Apple Podcasts. She says, this is the one and only podcast I refuse to miss. Christina is both upbeat and down to earth, and I always love getting her take on my favorite subject. So grateful for my anytime piano teacher friend. Well, KBLKB, I am grateful for you. So thank you for sharing those generous words and echoing everything I want this podcast to be. Um, it is an honor to be in your ears. Thanks so much. Um, feel free to follow in KBKLB's footsteps and leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Not only does it make my day, but it also helps make sure more people can find us here at the Beyond Measure podcast. I also wanted to throw one quick reminder your way that my supporter site over on Patreon is growing with some of the very best teachers in Musicland. <laughs> we are planning an A-list Zoom party for the end of the month, so if you want to be part of that, and if you want to hear my thoughts on how to make online lessons more engaging this month, uh, you can find that link in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Zoom meetings with that crew are never going to be boring. So you want to come join us, I promise. <laughs> Until next time, my teacher friends, onward and upward. We'll talk again soon. <laughs>